0: Well, you can turn them to Luke chapter 8, as we continue our verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Luke. We are in a new chapter this morning, Luke chapter 8, and the section uh, of verses 1 to 21 is one big unit, and that's the passage I'm going to read. Um, you know, I have this experience, you know, sometimes on Saturday, I just have way too much content, and it has to be, uh, something has to be done with it. So I, I realized that it would be best to, uh, instead of doing this in one, and Mike was very skeptical that I would do it in one, and so I, I submitted to his wisdom, and uh, we're going to finish this. Uh, we're going to look at verses 1 to 15 this morning and then 16 to 21. Be merciful to you. So, but I'm going to read the whole text. It all kind of goes together here. So follow along as I read Luke chapter 8 verses 1 to 21. Soon afterwards, he went on through, the, through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the 12 were with him, And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. And Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they are in parables. So that seeing, they may not see. And hearing, they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. And their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar, or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care then how you hear, for to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. To audit a class in college is to sign up for a class and yet not get credit for that class. Uh, There's many reasons why you might do this, to not affect your GPA, uh, just because your interest in the content. Uh, But if you audit a class, you don't usually don't technically have to do any of the work in the class. You don't have to turn any assignments, uh, read any of the texts. Uh, you simply go to the lectures and take it. Um, now, that may differ according to school, but generally uh, you're not responsible for doing the work and responding to the syllabus. Uh, you just go in and take it. Um, and so you just want the content. You just want to hear. You're curious. Well, as we've been studying the gospel of Luke, there are massive crowds that are following Jesus. Uh, And many of these people are merely auditors of Christ. They are listening to Jesus. They're fascinated by Jesus. He's healing people. He's doing incredible miracles. And they are drawn to him, but they are likened to someone who audits a class. They just want to listen from a distance, take it in but they don't want to respond to the message in repentance and in faith. And sadly, many today, I think, are happy to audit the teachings of Christianity, the teachings of Christ and who Christ is, and merely just hear and listen and find it fascinating. But uh, it really, they have no intention of receiving the forgiveness that is in Christ and uh, repenting of their sin, acknowledging it, and trusting in Christ as their Savior and Lord. And this is a dangerous position to be in, as Jesus is going to talk about, especially if you are a regular church attender. uh, These are the people Jesus is is talking to, people who are regularly under the hearing of God's word, and he's saying, that's a dangerous position if you have no intention of responding to the word. As we will see, this is part of the reason Jesus began to teach in parables Parables are introduced to us here in this passage, and they are a teaching method of Jesus, but there's much misunderstanding about parables and what Jesus is doing with them, why he begins to use them. And we'll see that uh, bear out in our text. Parables are often thought of as a way that Jesus was trying to make, uh, make difficult truths clearer by just regular illustrations, Uh, that's actually probably contrary to the main point that Jesus is using parables uh, that we're gonna see. It's actually, Jesus begins to use parables to conceal the truth, which seems so strange to us, but it's gonna bear out in the text. But it has a dual purpose, actually. It is to conceal truth to some and to reveal truth to others. Why would Jesus do this? Why would he begin to speak like this And teach like this. And that's what our text is going to show us. For us, as we come to hear the word of God preached and taught, we must be careful how we hear. Or we must look how we hear. And that's a funny way to say it. Look with your eyes at your ears, right? Uh, But that's actually the the image Jesus uses in verse 16. um, Or sorry, verse uh, 18. The beginning, he says, take care how you hear, and in Greek, it's like the idea, it's like, look how you hear, and so hence the title of our message, so Luke in this section is particularly focused upon this issue, how one responds to the word of God, how one responds to the scriptures, to the preaching of Jesus, or really for that matter, in our day, uh, anyone teaching and sowing the seed of the word of God, how do you respond to that? And then also helping us as Christians to look at others who have heard the word of God and yet maybe haven't responded. And how do we process that? How do we think about that? And that's what this passage does for us. That's what verses one to 21 are about, focusing on the theme of how you hear the word of God, how you respond to the word of God. And from this passage, I want you to observe three implications from the ministry of the word of Christ so that you might rightly respond to it. Of course, this this morning, we're gonna look at the first two of these, and next week, we'll we'll save our third point. But here, here are the three. First, in verses one to three, we wanna see that you need to support the ministry of the word. Secondly, survey the soils of the word, and then next time, we'll look at the need to submit to the teachings of the word. So verses 1 to 3, verses 4 to 15, and verses 16 to 21. Let's look at our first point here, uh, this first implication of the, the word of Christ being taught, and it's support the ministry of the word. Support the ministry of the word. Luke summarizes, this is, Luke has some of these sections in his gospel. It's like a summary section. He's just kind of reviewing, uh, and you get uh, some detail. Uh, Luke, in fact, in his gospel, loves to focus on the women who follow Jesus. It's a particular theme of his, and we see that come out again here. Uh, He's summarizing Jesus going through various cities, villages, and he's doing what he's always been doing. The priority of his ministry was preaching, proclaiming, and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And that's really to say that Jesus is the king, God is king, he's sovereign because he made us, he has rights over us, and Jesus is the one who has come and he is the king who will rule on the earth in the way that Adam failed to rule when God created him. And so he's coming to bring this kingdom, but in order to enjoy the benefits of this kingdom, enjoy the fullness of this kingdom, Israel must repent. They must be rightly related to the king to see this happen. And when Israel's right with God, then they become a blessing to to all the nations and the whole world, and that's what brings the fullness of the kingdom. So Jesus is preaching all, that contain, all that's contained in that message, and of course, the focus here right now is, are you rightly related to the king? Are you rightly related to the creator, to Jesus the Messiah? And that's what he keeps on preaching. And so Luke is reminding us of that. And then we're reminded of the 12 that are with Jesus, the 12 that Jesus chose. These are the, who will become the 12 apostles uh, that Jesus has chosen. And, and of course, we've already studied them uh, at length and we've seen how they come from all kinds of different backgrounds. You got some guys who would, you know, love to knife a Roman uh, because they were, uh, uh, one, Simon the Zealot. And then you have others who are serving Rome. They're a tax collector, like Levi, Matthew. And of course, you have such, a broad range of um, uh, lifestyles that these men are being saved out of. But in addition to them, we're introduced to others who are following Jesus around, these women. And they are uh, part of the support team of Jesus and his followers. And you can think about it like this. These women have been profoundly impacted by the word of Jesus such that they are now following him and supporting him in more ways than one. Remember our last study in chapter seven? You had this woman who was a great sinner. She had been forgiven of all of her sins by Jesus, and so she comes and she, she just shows her devotion to him at this uh, dinner party, and Jesus says she loves so much because she's been forgiven so much. And here, these women are the same. They've been forgiven much as well, and so now they love much, and here's how they love. They're serving the ministry of the word through Jesus as they follow him around and support him. They supported, we could say it like this, they supported the ministry of the word because they had all been saved through the ministry of the word. Now, 12 are the same story. Now, some of these women have been delivered from lives of great pain uh, and darkness and from all different contexts, we don't know how many women there are. He, he actually will say many others, but he highlights three for us here. The first is Mary, called Magdalene, and the reason for that is she's from the town of Magdala, and it's on the it's on the coast of the Sea of Galilee, which is a lake, right? It's a freshwater lake in um, in the Galilee region, and so this is where Jesus is ministering they actually unearthed a first century synagogue. Rich, you talk about synagogues in Sunday school. They unearthed a first century synagogue. So I think first century, that's when Jesus would have lived. So this is what would have been a synagogue that Jesus would have been in at some point. And uh, when I was in Israel, I got to go into the synagogue and look at it. It's super cool. And it, you can see the Sea of Galilee right there. Uh, it, it would be a great location for, you know, weekly worship. <laughs> you know, you've got the Sea of Galilee right there, nice breeze. But here is where she's from, that area. And it, we're told that she was full of demons. She had seven demons cast out of her. I mean, just incredible demonic uh, oppression in her life, and yet we're not told the background of all this, but she's delivered by Jesus. We mentioned before someone associate her with the woman in chapter 7. It's a uh, mistake to do that. She's not the same woman. Um, Here she's, though, delivered from this great life of pain, from this demonic uh, possession, and Jesus is casting out many demons during this time, and, and she is one of those examples. Then we see um, Joanna, Joanna, and this is fascinating. This is something you could like read over and be like, okay, big deal. But this is just kind of funny in, in, to me at least. I don't know, this is what I find funny. Uh, <laughs> her husband is a man named Chusa, okay? And he is, we're told that he's ha- Herod's household manager. This is Herod Antipas, and we we don't have time. The Herods are so difficult to figure out. They're like, there's so many Herods. Okay, but this is Herod Antipas, and this word here, it's either that he's the manager of Herod's, like a royal estate of Herod's or a high-ranking official at Herod's court. Either way, this guy is high up in managing a managerial role for Herod Antipas, who just, I mean, just so you know, Herod is not a Christian. He's not a follower of Christ. Uh, He's very opposed to Christ. And so you have to love this irony. Here is Herod supporting the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of the word in an indirect way as he supports the husband of this woman who is supporting Jesus. <laughs> you got to love this irony, the unintentional support of this Roman ruler supporting Jesus in his ministry through this woman. This also is meant to show us in Luke's part the extent of Jesus' ministry. It's reached all the way into Herod's household. This is all kinds of people. Gentiles are hearing about the message that Jesus is preaching and they're responding to it and being changed. Of course, we have then Susanna here. We don't know much else about her and then many others who follow along. These women appear later in the gospel at the uh, crucifixion and resurrection. They're highlighted there as well. So they follow for the long haul. And here they are providing for the ministry of Jesus. It says, um, the end of verse three, who provided for them out of their means. And certainly this is financial, but also in a variety of other practical ways uh, that didn't involve money, but their time, their skills, their service, I mean, they're traveling around. Why would you support the ministry of the word like this? Well, we said it, because they've been profoundly changed by it. You do this because of what it's done in your life, how it's impacted you. You see the the power of the word of God, and so you want to get behind that. This is the impact it had in their lives. So we see the importance of the word. And people give to political campaigns, you know, we know that right now, and people are raising money for their campaigns, and people give to those because they believe in the candidate, uh, because they want to see them uh, furthered. And... These people are supporting the ministry of Jesus because they believe in him, and they, they have been changed by Him and by His message. And it's no different today. If you've been changed by the gospel, you want to support gospel ministry. <laughs> it's pretty basic. Yes, you want to be discerning, of course, because you know that not all that calls itself gospel ministry or a word-based ministry is faithful. So you want to do some digging. That's totally good and appropriate, and make sure that that's faithful. But when you've discovered that it is, and you've been, especially if you've been helped by a certain ministry of the word, uh, some teacher or a book, you're like, man, this is so good. I want other people to hear this too. And so we understand that, and that's what's happening here with these women. It's just so very natural. And this is the early church. Uh, They, they, they continued this practice of supporting one another. If you look at Second Corinthians eight, Second Corinthians 8, verse 1 to 5, it says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. In other words, he's saying, here's these poor Christians. This is not like a wealthy church, and yet they see a need in another church, and they go, we got to help them. Come on, we got to pull together. And they, they send support. And Paul's saying, look at this. I mean, th- You wouldn't expect this church to be serving, but they're so eager. They're so desirous to serve other Christians because they're saying, we love them. The word has changed us. We want to help them. And of course, this is in the book of Acts as well, in the early church. As Acts recounts that, Acts 4, verse 33. it says, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So here they're meeting one another's needs, they're supporting one another. This practice continues through the church and of course even today. Of course we give to the ministry of the word, but we give ourselves to the ministry of the word. No, that doesn't mean you're like you're a preacher or anything like that. It doesn't have to mean that. It means that you maybe you serve in the church in some way. Christians do that. They they want to see others benefited by the word and through their service, through actions, or through their service through the word. First Peter talks about this. First Peter makes this point. We study first Peter, so this is just by way of review. First Peter four, verse ten. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another, as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So everything flows out of the ministry of the Word. So your service in the church and to one another is a support of the ministry of the word, whatever context that may manifest itself. And so what role can you play? Where can you sacrifice in the service of the word and of the church? How are you giving yourself in service to the ministry of the word? You know, we don't serve God because he needs anything. Our God is not a needy God. We serve because we are grateful for the salvation we have been given. We are grateful and we count it a privilege to serve the Lord. This is the Macedonian Christians. They're like, man, give us the privilege of giving to you guys to serve you, even in our poverty. But as this group of, so this is what we see in their lives. They they are supporters of the word and it manifests itself in different ways. And this is just the the pattern of Christians who've been impacted by the word. They, they, They want other people to hear it. They're like, this is so profound. This has changed my life. Other people need to hear this. And so this is what, this is the response we need to have to the word of God to further support the propagation of the word. And that's what they're doing. Now, as the word goes out, here's the question that this group will have and that we have. The word goes out and some people respond to it, but a lot of people don't. And some people respond to it initially, but then they seem to like fall away. What What's the deal with that? And that's the question that Jesus is, those are the questions Jesus, uh, and the situations that Jesus is preparing them for in the parable that he tells. The parable of the soils. He's gonna show why there are different responses to the word, and within that, what are the dangers to the word as it goes forth? So that's the next thing he begins to explain. So we see support, the ministry of the word. Then we see, survey the, the soils of the word. Survey the soils of the word. You can also say, sow the seed of the word, I suppose. But the focus here is on noticing these different categories of hearers. Verses 4 to 15. Now, first we want to just see the parable stated itself. And then we'll see um, the purpose of the parables. And then the point that is seen. So first, let's look at the point, sorry, the parable stated in verses four to eight. Verse four just gives us the crowd and it says in verse four, look there. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable. So once again, great interest surrounds Jesus, many people listening, not all responding to him, becoming disciples, and so he begins to tell these parables in public. What is a parable? the word. uh, This is not always a good thing to do uh, with a word because it's not how we understand like words. So if you're doing word studies, it's like you don't just break apart the word and say, oh, it means this and this. But this is somewhat helpful in this instance. So para, parable. So para means beside and uh, balo is the word for throwing. So it's like to throw beside or to cast alongside. And so that gives the idea of like a comparison, right? To put two things next to each other is like a comparison. So we understand a parable is like a story that takes something from everyday life usually and it compares it to something else, uh, usually a spiritual truth and it's particularly about the kingdom of God. So that's kind of the idea. Now, you don't want to do that with like butterfly and you're like butter and fly and that's what butterfly, and you're like, no, no, that's not what a butterfly is at all. So it doesn't always work, but you you get the idea. Um, So a parable is an illustration, right? It's, It's kind of a common illustration of a spiritual truth. But people get confused about these, and the reason is for maybe two reasons. One, they think that Jesus always spoke in parables for his entire ministry, which is not the case. It's at this point in his ministry that he starts. He maybe has upwards of two years before he starts speaking in parables. Secondly, they think that the purpose Jesus is using, the primary purpose of parables, is simply Jesus Jesus is a good illustrator. Now, that is true. Jesus was the master expositor, master preacher, and he used illustrations all the time from everyday life. That's not necessarily a parable, but when he begins to use parables, they think, oh, well, he's just trying to They don't understand what he's saying up to this point, right? After two years of ministry, they haven't understood. And so he's like starting a new teaching tactic, and he's trying to give them these stories that they'll understand. That is not at all why Jesus begins to use the parables, and we're going to see that. Matthew and and Mark give us many more parables than Luke does. Luke focuses here on this particular one, which is like the main parable that's included in all all three Gospels. But this is, this is the crowds, and, and he begins to speak to them in parables. We're going to see why in, in a moment here. And here, he just gives the categories, okay? The categories of the soils. And just look verse 5 here. Imagine you're in the crowd, right? You're hearing Jesus say this for the first time. He says, a sower went out to sow his seed. And so, okay, in an agrarian culture, this makes total sense. Like, everyone gets this. A lot of farmers, Right? And as he sowed, some fell along the path, was trampled underfoot. The birds of the air devoured it. So you'd have like these different fields, right? And you'd have pathways that would separate the fields. And of course, the pathways for walking. So you walk on those all the time. You don't walk in the field necessarily. And, and so that path becomes beaten down and hardened. And so, of course, you're just throwing seed out kind of indiscriminately. But of course, you're not trying to throw it on the path, but some gets on there. And the point is it's so hard, the ground is so hard that, you know, it just, birds, it's easy for them to get to, and so they come, and they pluck it up, and that's all Jesus says. In verse six, some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Now, don't think about this as like a field full of rocks, but think about this rather as like a limestone layer under the ground and it's deep enough so that there's a layer of soil on top of that and it's a layer that's deep enough for a plow to not reach that so that the farmer doesn't realize that there's limestone underneath but it's uh it's it's enough it's close enough to where when the seed falls on it it germinates quickly and something comes up but it can't hold enough moisture so that when the sun beats down it dies and that's what jesus says about that one okay Verse 7, and some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. So, once again, thrown out, uh, it begins to grow, but these other faster-growing thorns begin to rise up along with it and sometimes even wrapping around, but it just saps all the nutrients away. And so this one is choked out, and it doesn't produce. And then finally, verse 8, some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And that's what Jesus says. Like that's his teaching. That's his public, that's his sermon, okay? And then here's what he says. Here's the final call where he says at the end of verse 8, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now that is Jesus' sermon. Do you know what it means? Now you go, yeah, I know what it means. Yeah, because you cheated. You know, you know the story. You know the explanation, right? The disciples are hearing this. All the people are hearing this. And the disciples are looking at each other and they're going, what does that mean? Like, what is he talking about? Because this is not the normal way Jesus has been teaching. He's been very clear. He's been talking about the need for repentance. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now he tells a story about everyday farming. And it's like, yeah, we know all those things. Yeah, those, there's four soils. Okay. What does any of that mean? And you wouldn't know either. You wouldn't know what that meant unless someone told you. And that's the whole point. That's the whole point. That's why he says at the end, he has ears to hear, let him hear. And this is a phrase that's already come up in Luke, where it's the idea of everyone has ears, right? Physical ears, and everyone can hear the message. They heard the parable, but they don't have the ears that Jesus is talking about, like a spiritual perception, an ability to understand and truly grasp revelation from God in a saving way. And so he's saying, for those of you who do have the work of the Holy Spirit, God's opening your heart to believe the message, listen to this, understand this, perceive this. And this is what he tells them. You think, wow, that is not super clear as to the meaning. <laughs> and that is exactly the point. So the, this shows us that the, the prayer were not Jesus' teaching style to help people understand things better because no one knows what he's talking about. Then we see the purpose sought. Naturally, right? What are you, what are you talking about, Jesus? But notice when this happens, right? Jesus gives this parable to the crowds, but then we get private, right? Now we're not with the crowds, we're with the disciples in Jesus. Verse nine, look at verse nine. And when his disciples asked him what the parable meant, and this is a private context now, when you read the, the gospels here, uh, and, and we see Jesus beginning to explain to them. They're seeking what they want to know. And he says, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom. But for others, they are in parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. So here's the purpose. And it's a twofold purpose of this teaching style that begins now in Jesus' ministry. It's to reveal truth and to conceal truth. It's to do both. It is to reveal truth to those who are true disciples, and it is to conceal truth from those who will not believe. Look at verse 10 again. He says, to you. To you it has been granted. And here he now is speaking to them in private. Um, Mark, in his gospel, in Mark chapter 4, verse 34 In verse 34, he says, He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately, to his own disciples, he explained everything. Now, this is not to be taken that he was, from the beginning of his ministry, speaking in parables. But at this moment, he, he stopped speaking openly, but in parables. Why would this happen? He's leaving the crowds hanging as to what these stories mean. And and yet, in private, he explains it to the disciples. To you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. This word, has been given, it's the idea that they've they've got the privilege of revelation. God has granted this. This is a gift from God that he's granted to them to understand the meaning of these things because he's about to explain it. They have the privilege of further revelation. Remember later, we're not going to get there today, but to those who think they have what they think they have will be taken away from them because they didn't respond. And to those who do have and respond, they will be given more. That's this principle here. It was God's sovereign decision to reveal it to them and not to others. In Matthew's gospel, in Matthew 11, listen to what Jesus says. After rebuking cities in Israel that were hearing his message over and over and yet were not responding to it, we're not repenting, He said in verse 24, Matthew 11, but I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. And then at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will all things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father and no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. And so this is the sovereign decision of God here. And they are getting the privilege. To you it has been given, granted, sovereignly bestowed by God to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. What are the secrets of the kingdom of God? <laughs> Sometimes it says mysteries of the kingdom of God. And this word mystery uh, Don't think of a mystery in the Bible. How does the Bible use mystery or secrets? Right. The idea is not like a Gnostic knowledge. uh, For the, it's this idea not of something you could never know, but just something that has not yet to this point been made known. So, like a mystery is like a Christmas present, right? It's under the tree. You don't know what's inside until when you open it, and you open it, and the mystery. Is now no longer a mystery. That is the idea of biblically a mystery. There are things that, that God will reveal and through the writers of scripture, and they'll say, This is a mystery. And so they're saying, like, here's the present, but I'm opening it right now. Up to this point, we didn't know about this. But now God is saying, I'm telling you about it now. And so that is what Jesus is doing for his disciples. Because Israel is rejected on the whole, like they're, the religious leaders, the representatives of Israel, they've rejected Jesus. Jesus begins to reveal secrets of the kingdom. In other words, things that God had not yet revealed in the Old Testament, and he begins to elucidate and explain further truths to them about how the kingdom is going to function right now in this age before the Messiah returns again. And so that's what he's doing here. He's, he's beginning to give them the, these privileges. And he quotes an Old Testament passage to show us this. And it's from Isaiah chapter six. Isaiah chapter six. And of course, Isaiah's writing um, to Israel and they're on the verge of going into exile and uh, because of their sin, because of their breaking of the covenant that God made with them. And he promised that if they did, they would go into exile. And so he, God reveals himself to Isaiah And after this incredible vision of God that he has, he is cleansed of the guilt of his sin. And then he's commissioned to speak to Israel. And verse 8 of chapter 6 says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to the people. So, Isaiah, here's your message. Here's what you're going to say keep on hearing but do not understand keep on seeing but do not perceive make the heart of this people dull and their eye and their eyes sorry and their ears heavy and blind their eyes like what this is your message isaiah go out and preach to them but it's a message that is going to harden them it will not lead to their repentance it will lead to their further hardening why Let's preach this message, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And, and then Isaiah's like, uh, okay, well, maybe this is like a short term thing. And he says, how long should I do this? And he says, until the cities are desolate. In other words, until Israel's fully in exile because God is judging them. And so by quoting this, Jesus is saying, we're in a similar situation to the days of Isaiah, to the days leading up to exile. Israel has rejected God and rejected her king, and therefore Israel's going deeper into exile now. And so this is the judgment upon them that they will not be able to perceive the truth and respond to it any longer. The parables then function as a judicial judgment by God upon those who refuse to believe. And this is so important to understand the context of when this happens. Jesus has been teaching a lot. He's been proving himself through miracles and signs and wonders and preaching with great clarity and yet people continue to reject him. Remember his own hometown in Nazareth. They tried to push him off a cliff when he, when he was preaching to them because they were so angry at him for his message. And then Jesus in chapter 7 he likened the current generation of Israelites to like children playing in the marketplace. And he said, it doesn't matter the form that the message or the the method that's given, uh, who's preaching the, the message, you guys won't have it. And he says, like, you're like children who, you know, some kids want to play funeral. They're like, we want to play funeral. So they play the funeral dirge. And they're like, no, we don't want to play funeral. And then they're just like, well, let's play wedding. And so they play the wedding march. And the kids are like, we don't want to play wedding either. And he's like, it doesn't matter for you guys. No matter what is played, whether it's John the Baptist's ministry or whether it's my ministry, they have different styles, but they have the same message, you won't respond. And so in that state, he's saying, all right, if you're not going to respond, then it's lights out darkness. And in Matthew and Mark, Luke doesn't say this, but in Matthew and Mark, the parables come right after a massive event. It's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, uh, which is where basically the religious leaders, they look at all the miracles that Jesus is doing, and they say, we know the explanation for this. Satan is empowering Jesus to do these miracles. Jesus is from Satan, right? That's kind of the ultimate rejection of Jesus. And so he's saying, okay, it's over for you. Parables. I'm going to tell stories, and you have no idea what they mean. And that's why he tells the parables. But then he explains them to his disciples who do believe. And and those who, in other words, like, if you were like, I need to know, and you go to Jesus, and you're like, I want to know, he explains it. And, And you have the privilege of knowing. But for those who have, they're just like, what is he talking about? It's like, some people are like, that's deep. You know, that's what you say when you, when you don't understand. And he's like, I've stepped in puddles, deeper than that. You know, what are you talking about here? This is, this is so confusing. So th- because of this season in Israel's ministry and life, this is why he begins to tell these parables. And we see this in other places, Luke 11, verse 52. Woe to you, lawyers, not like lawyers like we know today, but lawyers like the professionals of God's law For you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. Uh, You've just removed the key of knowledge. You've taken it away because of your rejection. Chapter 19, verse 42. He says, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. And so there's this judicial hardening. And yet, even though there's this judicial hardening, which seems harsh, it is actually a merciful act of God. Because here's how the logic works in scripture. And we saw this a little bit when we quoted Luke, I'm sorry, Matthew 11, where Jesus says, woe to you cities who've rejected, it's gonna be worse for you on the day of judgment than Sodom. If you hear the message and you reject it, and you continue to reject it, but then you keep getting more truth from God, more revelation, more clarity, that just compounds your judgment in the end. That's the logic of scripture. That's what scripture teaches that. So yes, if you, if you haven't heard, you're still guilty before God, you've broken his law. But if you have sat in church your whole life and you could you know write a systematic theology and you could teach the Bible and, and some have and, uh, and yet you reject the message, it is like the worst for that person. It's not the person who just lives an immoral life and they, you know, have never really heard the gospel. It's the person who has, here's the worst condemnation for the preacher who has preached for his whole life and he's studied the depths of scripture. And yet he never believed it for himself. He's like the waiter who serves the food and he's never tasted it himself. That person's judgment in hell is the worst judgment ever. That's what Jesus is saying. And so he's saying, all right, this is a merciful hardening for the religious leaders because if they continue to hear more truth and keep rejecting it, it is just worse and worse and worse for them. And so he just gives them truth that they have no idea what he's talking about. So that yes, it is a judicial hardening, but in a, in a kind of roundabout way, it is a merciful hardening way to not compound their judgment. This is how serious their rejection of the truth is. For those who reject, it goes dark. For those who believe, though, they receive explanation of the parables, and they get to open the present and learn what's inside. They get more truth, and this is where we see the point scene. This is where Jesus explains the parable. What is this about? And he explains this in private to the privileged disciples and to us. Verse 11, Here's where the explanation comes. Now, the parable is this The seed is the word of God. Just see how clear that is? Seed is the word of God. Boom, answer key. (laughs) It's like, this is that. Now, before, you just have no idea what what is this? What is he talking about? What does this represent? (laughs) What is this metaphor? But now it's just so clear. It's so easy to understand. Why? Because now he's unveiling it. It's the mystery revealed. And and other passages of Scripture speak this way. Peter. Uh, who is hearing this, right? He'll write in his letter in 1 Peter one twenty three, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And Peter picks up on this illustration. He starts to use it now for the word of God later. And so the gospel comes to various hearts. The word of God comes to various hearts and there's various responses to it. The different soils then represent different human hearts. The seed represents the word of God. The, the sower is really anyone who communicates the message of the word of God. And they sow it, they, they share it with someone and the, it hits the heart and there's different responses because there's different soils, different hearts. Now, the power of the word of God is not lessened by this, but it's actually predicting this ahead of time. So it's saying, hey, the word of God predicted beforehand that there would be these kinds of responses already. And so there's four, uh, four soils here. You have first the stolen, that represent the, you know, faith in the heart of a person. So first you have stolen faith. Stolen faith. Look at verse 12. The ones along the path are those who have heard, then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. So we explain what this was initially on the surface, this hard surface, it's trampled upon, it's beaten down, it goes there and the birds come and eat it up. And Jesus now begins to explain that this is like a person who has a hard heart, uh, a, a, a indifferent heart. It's not been tilled up by conviction, by... Um, it's softened through through preaching. It's been hardened by preaching, and so the result is that the seed is lying there. It can't get into the ground and, and bear fruit, and so it's just easy pickings for Satan, and he takes it and removes it. In other words, it's nearly forgotten immediately. And These are people who hear the gospel message clearly portrayed, and they just don't do anything with it. And Likely Jesus is, is specifically addressing the religious leaders here. Like they hear the word and it's, their heart is so hard, it's, it just it has no impact whatsoever and they walk away. This is for anyone who would hear the word and not have any response. They hear the glorious message about God, about his perfection uh, and holiness and goodness and lack of any need. They hear about his creating them in his image uh, because he not because he needed someone or something, but to allow us to share in the life of God and the joy of his inner life. They hear about man. They hear about man's sin against God. They hear about how they have broken God's law personally. Their conscience bears witness to this. The, the, The law of God shows them that they're lawbreakers when they hold them up to that standard. It crushes them under the weight of God's standard. Before God and the word of God They see their lawbreakers. They hear of their guilt before God. They hear of their inability to earn their way to God by good works. They hear of their crushing weight, of their inability to be free of their sin. But then they hear of the glorious God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. They hear of the prophecies about him throughout the Old Testament, starting from Genesis all the way to Malachi. They hear about his birth, his perfectly obedient life to God's law. They hear about his death on a cross, on a Roman cross, and then they hear what the cross means that he died as a substitute in the place of sinners to bear the just wrath of God for sinners. They hear about forgiveness. They hear about Jesus' compassionate healing and welcoming of sinners to himself. They also hear of the resurrection. They hear about his conquering death and ability to bring a new creation. They hear about the need of repentance and uh, of their sin, acknowledge it before God and bring it into the light. They, they hear about the need to trust in Christ alone for their only hope, not to work themselves to be pleasing to God, but to trust and to cease striving. Uh, they hear about the righteousness of Christ that can be gifted to someone by faith. They hear about how they can be reconciled to a holy and good God. They hear about Jesus returning to rid the world of sin and bring in the new heavens and new earth to restore justice and make an earth for us to live on as it was intended to be, just like Eden, better than Eden. They hear how the Word of God explains the past and where we come from. They hear about how the Word of God explains the future and where we're going. They hear uh, the Word of God and how it establishes how we can know anything for certain. They see the Word of God and how it instructs us on how to live. They hear all of that and they walk away. It's like, all right, cool, cool story. <laughs> I mean, that, that's, the, that's the seed sown on the hard soil. Nothing happens. To them, it's foolishness. Paul says this, 1 Corinthians one twenty-one. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now, and why does this happen? Why does this happen? Well, 2 Corinthians 4 tells us. Paul says, he's trying to explain this further. He says, and even if our gospel is veiled, if like, you, you can't see it, the good news, it's veiled to those who are perishing In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds, God of this world is a way to refer to Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. This happens in a lot of different ways, tactics. One writer said this, "Satan uh, Satan does that through false teachers, fear of man, embarrassment at identifying with Jesus Christ, pride, Doubt causes them to not believe and be saved. And most of all, through the love of sin. And do you know people like this? Right? The word goes out. And it's just like adamant, uh, adamantine uh, heart. It's so hard. It, it just, it won't penetrate. This is the first soil. This is the stolen faith. Second, we see superficial faith. Superficial faith. Look at verse 13. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word... Receive it with joy, but they have no root. They believe for a while and, in time of testing, fall away. Seed sown on rocky soil. Like we said, it's enough to allow it to germinate a little bit and have a result, but it, it can't get, keep moisture. And so, when the sun comes out, Jesus saying, like when trials come, the heat of trials, it withers away. There's no nourishing, continual nourishing fruit. This person is someone who hears the word of God and they have an eagerness, they have an excitement. Uh, they, they make a profession of faith in Christ that they want to follow Christ. But it's temporary, it's shallow. Luke actually, he, of, of the three gospel writers, he says they believe. He uses the word believe. They, believe, they have a, an intellectual affirmation of the truth that they've heard. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense. And it says they believe for a while. But when the difficulty comes, and this is why... When the difficulty comes, they fall away. This is why it's so important to not like, shy away from telling people the whole gospel. Like that, hey, your, your life might not become easier by coming to Christ and having your sins forgiven. It may become harder in this life. Yes, we're looking for a new heavens and new earth, but, but if, you, if you fail to r- remind people, hey, there are trials, there are struggles in life, just like everyone else. We have hope in God. But, but here, it's like they, they didn't expect that, and so they, they leave, they fall away. Uh, there's other passages in Scripture, of course, that speak about a superficial kind of belief. Paul calls it believing in vain. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, unless you believed in vain, believe for nothing. You believe for a while, it seems genuine, but they don't endure in their trust. And this gets at the nature of saving faith. It is that it endures till the end. It keeps on believing, it keeps on trusting. It's not that we, we, we don't have anything to do with earning our salvation. We can't do that. We look to Christ as our hope and salvation, but the person who looks to Christ, they keep on looking to Christ. Their whole lives they realize and they profess through their trust in Christ, I I can't earn God's favor myself. I need him to save me. These are flash-in-the-pan kind of people, and they were never truly saved. You have to realize this. You know, those who make just, they're, they're baptized, they, they profess Christ, they do Christian things It usually happens sooner, sometimes later. And you see a lot of this in social media, like people, what they call deconstructing their faith. And some were pastors and they're going, yeah, I don't believe anymore and this is ridiculous. You know, and, uh, and you see that and that's, that's this, right? They, they had a big response and then they, they walk away, they fall away. 1 John two nineteen says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were not all of us. And so these are not true followers, according to Jesus. Trials have a way of destroying superficial faith, but those same trials have a way of strengthening and confirming the sincere faith of true believers. This is what Peter will say In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the second soil, superficial faith. Third, we see the sidetracked faith. Sidetracked faith. Look at verse 14. And as for, the, as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go, as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Here are these thorns that makes it hard for the plant to grow. Sometimes these things can shoot up really fast, and they just sap all of the, the nutrients from the seed. This person makes a profession of faith. For a season, they may walk with the Lord, but you see the slow mission drift. They, they creep. They, it's like things creep into their lives, and they choke out any commitment to Christ. He says specifically, this isn't so much like persecution and trials in life, like the second seed. This is cares, riches, and pleasures, common fit- pitfalls to persevering faith. Um, First Timothy talks about this. Paul talks about this in 1 Timothy. This is our next week's scripture reading. 1 um, Timothy 6, verse 6, he says, now there is great gain in godliness with contentment old preacher in England said this, thousands of things which in themselves are innocent become when followed to excess little better than soul poisons and helps to hell. Open sin is not the only thing that ruins souls, except we watch and pray these temporal things may rob us of heaven and smother every sermon we hear. These are people like Esau who sold his birthright for Uh, a bowl of stew. They're like Demas in the New Testament who his love for the things of this world led him to desert the faith. Or like the rich young ruler who after uh, talking to Jesus, he went away sad because he had many possessions. This fruit doesn't ripen or mature. Thorns take them out. And, And this is how it works. It's subtle at first. Notice the phrase here. It says, as they go on their way, that's kind of a scary verse. As they go on their way, it is meant to be subtle, not sudden. Like you go, oh, I would recognize that in my life. It's like, that's the whole point. It's subtle. It's not, oh man, this is, this is so in your face. No, lots of excuses for a long time as to why other priorities are sidelining commitments to Christ. And then slowly and surely, slowly and surely it just creeps out and chokes out love for Christ. It's a call to examine priorities. Yes, God gives us many good things to enjoy, but they are gifts from God, not God's instead of God. Adele Ralph Davis, a preacher, asked this question at this point with these three soils. He says, are you reading your biography in these soil samples of Jesus? And it's a, it's a very heart searching, uh, literally as he's talking about hearts, passage. And then he gets to the, the fourth soil, the saving faith. Saving faith. In verse 15, look there. He says, As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Now, the first three uh, represent people who've never truly been saved. They're not real Christians. You can't lose your salvation. He's not talking about people who were saved and then lost that. He's saying they, they appeared to associate some of them, but then it wasn't real, it wasn't genuine. People can call themselves Christians and yet not be a Christian in the biblical sense. And this fourth soil, though, is the one that truly represents someone who's saved. And why is it that their heart is different? It's not because of them that they didn't make their heart good. God changed their heart. He gave them new life. We call that regeneration or the new birth to see the glory of Christ and the worthlessness of their sin to trust in him and, and here's the re- result. He says, a hundredfold. That's what he said earlier, that they produce a hundredfold. Now, that is an insane yield. <laughs> like that, that is unheard of. Now, Jesus' parables have this way of like, uh, and stories of, you know, they, they go along, you're like, yep, I track, I'm tracking, I'm tracking. And then he has this little twist at the end, and you're like, what? I mean, wh- what is that? Th- this fruitfulness is unheard of. An average farmer during this time may have had a sevenfold to a tenfold yield. Jesus' is saying, hundredfold. It's like, imagine Jesus describing different cars instead of soils. All right, bring this into modern day. If he's describing cars, four cars, the parable of the four cars, right? The first car, you put your key in, and it doesn't start. It just clicks. Click, click, and the battery's dead, okay? Second car, you put the key in, and it starts. It turns over, but only for a few seconds, because there's no gas in the tank. There's just some leftover in the carburetor. And so, and it putters out. The third car, you turn on, put the key in, turn it, it starts, and it, it starts, and you put it in drive, and you start to drive out of your driveway, and the wheels fall off, <laughs> and so you're like, man, again, the fourth car, you get in, you put the key in, you turn it, it turns over, you put it in the gear, and it flies to the moon. Like, that's Jesus' parable. He's like, a hundredfold? What? Like, what in the world? Like, that is so unexpected that you would just have the DeLorean in your garage, you know, and fly that thing to the moon. That's what he's trying to say here. This is such a, you're meant to go, that doesn't happen, Jesus. That's not normal. Or you might say it like this, Jesus, that's supernatural. And now you've got it because you understand the nature of salvation. That it is a supernatural work. That apart from God's working, his gracious working in a heart, of course no one's going to respond. Of course there won't be fruit that God produces. God has to make it happen. And this is why it's so incredible. And this is why we have to pray. Like, and, and this is why you should feel freedom as you just share the gospel. It's like, hey, here's the gospel, here's what it is. And you know some are going to respond. And if, we're, if we just take this parable at face value, three don't respond and one do. Maybe there's not going to be as many responses as we think. It just helps us with our expectation. And yet, we know that it is God who must bring true saving faith and growth. And and here, it is a seed. Here's Here's the nature of the saving faith. They continue on. They bear fruit with patience. They keep on persevering. They keep showing that they're trusting by the fruit that they bear. And this is like the consistent message of the early church, as leaders go and encourage people who've believed. Listen to what Barnabas says in Acts chapter 11, verse um, 20, uh, 22. It says, The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them, he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith." And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when they had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So the point is, these people believe, and what do they go back and do? They say, keep on believing. Keep on trusting. Keep on relying upon Christ as your only hope. Chapter 13 of Acts, verse 43 It says, and after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Chapter 14, verse 22. It says that they went back to the churches who believed, and it says, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. That's what the second soil didn't realize, right? Many tribulations to enter the kingdom of God, many struggles, trials. Tom Schreiner writes this, the evidence of salvation is perseverance to the end, persisting in our faith. We know our faith is real if we believe to the end. We know our conversion is real if we do not fall away. The mark of a true believer is not merely starting the race, but finishing it. And all of that, of course, is by God's grace. So what are the implications of this as we close? Well, the fault is not yours if someone doesn't believe the message. Just take a load off, right? In Mark's gospel, he says, the sower goes out and sows a seed, and then he goes to sleep. And Mark has a different emphasis. He's saying like, hey, don't worry about it. Just do the thing and go to sleep. Don't worry about it. Have a good night's rest. It's in God's hands now. It's not because of the message or the messenger. It's because of the man hearing it in their heart. That's the issue. And so this also would have an implication that We ought never to change the message. Don't change the seed because you're not seeing the results you want to see, right? Don't don't water down the message. Don't change the message. Just know the message. Speak the message. It's offensive, yes, at times to people who want to hold on to their sin, but just speak it. Don't change the seed because the seed is not the problem, and it's not the messenger. It's not like we need just the right person to share the gospel and then they'll believe. No, it's not the messenger. In fact, we don't even told who the messenger is. Just anyone. And so, don't change the message don't worry too much about the messenger, it's the man who's hearing it. God must work, so we must pray that God opens hearts. The issue is the sovereignty of God over the heart, and we see these two collide. God's sovereignty and salvation, man's responsibility, because, like, this can't happen unless people sow the seed. So, like, you have to show the gospel. Like, the gospel has to get out, right? There's no no growth going to happen apart from seed, but so we, we sow the seed, but we know that God causes the growth. This is what Paul says. You know, I, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And so that's the issue. We need to have both. We preach, we pray. That's the issue. So what kind of hear of God's word are you? Has it changed your life dramatically such that your life is now in the service of the word and the God of the word? Are you indifferent, hard to the word? Do you see the word humbly, hungrily, endure in it? Do you need to consider some areas where you're being choked out? It's been said that the same sun which melts the wax hardens the clay as the word goes forth. And it's just amazing that Jesus is still so gracious to continue to preach and continue to give the message to those who will hear. And with a quote of Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, the London pastor in the 1800s, just such a great uh, word for us as we think about sowing the seed of the word. He says this, and when he says minister, just think any Christian sharing the word. He says, what the minister has to do is to go forth in his master's name and scatter precious truth. If he knew where the best soil was to be found, perhaps he might limit himself to that which has been prepared by the plow of conviction. But not knowing men's hearts, it is his business to preach the gospel to every creature, to throw a handful on that hard heart yonder and another handful on that overgrown heart which is full of cares and riches and pleasures of this world. He has to leave the fate of the seed in the care of the master who gave it to him. For well he understands that he is not responsible for the harvest. He is only responsible for the care, the fidelity, and the integrity with which he scatters the seed. Right and left with both his hands, we are bound to preach the gospel, whether men will hear or whether they will forbear. Let men's hearts be what they may. I am not loosed, for my obligation to sow the seed on the rock as well as in the furrow, on the highway as well as in the plowed field. And so may we do that. Father, thank you for your word to us. We ask that you would bear fruit from your word, from the gospel in our personal conversations, through the preaching of your word, um, through books that have been written. We just pray that your word uh, would be used by your spirit to cause transformation, change, uh, people to see sin rightly, to hate it, to bring it before you in repentance and, um, and come to Christ in a trust in you. And Lord, help us to see our own hearts rightly, help us to repent of sin quickly, help us to recognize areas where our commitment to you is being choked out, that we would enjoy the good gifts you give, but we would not uh, exalt them too highly, um, making them gods. We would love the, the giver more than the gifts and enjoy the gifts rightly, and help us, Lord, to endure trials as they come, knowing that they are to strengthen and show the genuine testedness of our faith. Lord, we ask for your blessing upon our church, upon our lives this week. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's